Hi, everyone. We recorded our ideology episode right before Memorial Day, May 25th, 2020, the day of George Floyd's murder at the hands of law enforcement in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We want to present that conversation to our listeners, and please stay tuned after the episode for a postscript discussion with me, Hunter Hargraves, and Lynn Joyrich processing recent events at the intersections of television, racial injustice, and the movement for Black Lives. everyone, welcome to the second episode of Talking Television in a Pandemic, a five-episode podcast series exploring the medium of television and the field of television studies during the coronavirus crisis. My name is Brandy Monk-Payton. I'm an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University, and I am a co-organizer of this series along with Lynn Joyrich and Hunter Hargraves. Our topic for today is focused on ideology. We are psyched to have four amazing scholars of media culture here to help us unpack issues of ideology as they relate to television. Raquel Gates is an associate professor of cinema and media studies at the College of Staten Island CUNY. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Amanda Ann Klein is an associate professor of film studies in the English department at East Carolina University. Hello. Juan Jamas Rodriguez is Assistant Professor of Critical Media Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. Hi, everyone. And Amy Villarejo has been the Frederick J. Whiten Professor of Humanities at Cornell University and will be joining the School of Theater, Film, and Television at UCLA in the fall. Hi, nice to be here. Great. Welcome, everyone. So to start, I'll share a few brief thoughts and then we can open up for, for conversation. So ideological analysis is the bedrock of how I think many of us came to critically examine TV, especially regarding identity and difference. We know that TV is a system of representation shaped by values, beliefs, and ideas in given social, historical, political, and economic contexts. Audiences make meaning based not only on how they are addressed by the apparatus and text itself, but also based on their own lived experience. And during this global pandemic, I think we are confronted more acutely perhaps by the tensions between our positions as viewers seen at a distance through TV and as people in the world social distancing. Television creates an imagined community, right? So think about all those times, you know, we've heard we're all in this together at home, but exclusions remain, especially according to class, gender, race, and nationality. Amidst calls to reopen the country, it's important still to think about capitalism. How do we make sense now of the consumerist quality of television so central to its very form? So we hope that the global pandemic has renewed interest in conversations around the relationship between televisual aesthetics and politics, as well as communication and critique. So to begin, I want to, to ask, what kinds of TV representations are resonating with you right now and why? 
how are these representations informed by the material conditions under which you're currently living or not? I mean, we've been watching an incredible amount of television. I will, I will say that uh, as a family. And in terms of the conditions under which we're watching, I'm doing a lot of watching with my children who are in fourth grade and eighth grade. And so a lot of sitcoms are, are happening. Um, when I watch by myself, I tend towards more depressing uh, fare, like apocalyptic uh, horror-based stuff. So I'm kind of going between the two poles of very, very dark, dark viewing and then uh, sitcoms uh, with my family. But I've watched an incredible amount of <laughs> TV in the last two months. I've also been watching a lot, but I've noticed I haven't been watching as much fiction as I've noticed other people have. I've been watching a lot of reality television, but also I've just been watching a lot of news. Um, again, to my own detriment, but just even <laughs> just process the news. I've been watching like other news. Uh, so I really like local news. So I'm still glued to that um, and the ways that they're trying to now convey the local news given the, uh, their own social distancing. Uh, but I've also been watching a lot. I, I used to watch uh, Colbert and Seth Meyers and their late shows. And now I'm really fascinated by their like moving them home and trying to replicate that monologue or the like closer look. Uh, so I keep watching those obsessively and thinking about who adapts better to not having an audience and not having a, a laugh track. So those are, I think, the things that are I'm watching more and thinking more about. So I, I want to very gently push back on um, Brandy's question, actually. Um, I'm not watching too much of anything because I don't have time to watch anything. Um, and I think <laughs> I, I just I just feel the need to sort of to state that, that we're all experiencing this time in really different ways. Um, Amanda mentioned she's watching a lot of stuff um, with her kids. My kids are I have four year old twins um, who have the attention span of like fleas and can't be left alone for more than three minutes at a time. So um, I what am I watching? I'm watching with them when we watch, um, which is a lot of PBS kids, um, which I have a whole commentary on, but I'll save that for another podcast. Um, we're doing like weekly um, like movie nights, uh, which is sort of the one thing that's remained consistent since before all of this started. Um, and so we've been working through the classic Disney canon, which is uh, very interesting, um, especially from an ideological standpoint. And then, you know, there's the stuff that in order to kind of feel connected to the outside world, like I, I made a point to watch Tiger King. Um, and also The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. I should put documentary in quotes. Um, and, you know, beyond that, when I do uh, work late at night, I've been trying to get some writing done after they go to bed, which is means some really like late night slash early mornings. Um, I found myself like rewatching The Golden Girls and King of Queens, which are like my two favorite sitcoms, particularly because I find it very comforting right now. The idea of watching anything new feels um, a, a little overwhelming for me personally. So I'm just revisiting a lot of stuff I'm already familiar with. I think I'm with you, Raquel, that the burden of uh, watching so much on Zoom has turned me off from um, wanting to spend my evenings with screens. Um, and I'm longing for different kinds of connections that aren't as mediated. And when I have watched, I've found myself gravitating toward that old ideological bugaboo of live television, namely the Cuomo briefings, 
um, that happen every day in New York State and that, you know, have some semblance of fact-based processing of what we're going through, um, especially given the kind of polar polarizing and polar opposite of that coming from the White House. So it's it's been weirdly comforting to um, to tune into that and to have some sense of a live ongoingness of the pandemic. And then I've also been watching in the spirit of Golden Girls um, and Comfort Food, very long uh, marathon of Vera, a British detective show and, you know, kind of middle-aged lady TV. And that's been uh, that's been really nice. Yeah, I want to totally recognize and affirm the pushback, uh, Raquel, to the question, because I do, I, I mean, I think that this is the, the one of the central issues um, around this kind of stay-at-home order and the issue of domestic labor, right? How, how is labor being constructed in this moment? Um, who are we including and excluding when we're talking about our sort of television viewing habits? Um, and certainly this idea that there is comfort, you know, to be had by rewatching and revisiting uh, things that are familiar, right? Um, so, you know, everything from sitcoms to, to even, you know, these Disney films uh, that we then watch on our, our, on our smaller television screens. Um, and so I think that there's a kind of interesting uh, way in which we're both being uplifted, but also, as you were saying, Amanda, um, maybe some of us are resonating with this more apocalyptic fare uh, that, that sort of speaks to a different part of our existence now and trying to survive. Um, and then, you know, Juan, when you're talking about the kind of, it struck me that you said that you're watching local news, right? And, and I'm very curious as to how people are thinking about the local and the state and the national now with Cuomo's briefings, which I see, and it's addressed to New Yorkers, but yet it then is broadcast on MSNBC and, and, and CNN and whatnot. So then it has this more national feel. Um, so I think there's a lot there in terms of the the sort of space and place uh, in which we're thinking about television right now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the briefings is one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot. And um, I've watched some of the Cuomo ones. I don't live in New York, so I follow those less so. Uh, but I, Shannon Madden has this great piece, short piece about uh, reading the aesthetics of the Cuomo briefings. So she thinks about the setting um, and the PowerPoint aesthetics. So as soon as I, I read that, I started thinking about, so I live in Dallas. And one of the things that Dallas County did was one of the earlier places in Texas to start uh, instituting shelter in place. And at the local level, they've been a lot more forward in thinking about the kind of measures to be taken. And now that Texas as a state has sort of removed and reopened and removed all sorts of um, guidelines, they've threatened to sue Dallas County for trying to maintain them. So it was interesting to see the Dallas County judge have their own briefing about why they were instituting all these things when the governor weren't, wasn't. Uh, and the aesthetics of that were a lot more made at home, which is fascinating to watch. He didn't have a screen, so he printed everything and was just showing a little piece of paper. <laughs> it was like how to flatten the curve. So I still have that image because I was it was fast it was on local news and it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. He it was just like zoom in on these two two pieces of paper. If we don't find the curve, this is gonna happen. And it's like, oh no, we, we gotta do this. The internet has broken down. He's just using <laughs> if we don't do it. It's apocalypse over here. Um, so I've been fascinated by, by, by those. And even at that international level, so my parents still live in Mexico, and I've been watching the, the daily briefings by the uh, Secretary of Health in Mexico, 
Lopez Gatel, and he's been doing a lot of the Cuomo as well, which is in the in the official city hall and um, with elaborate PowerPoints and graphs. Um, April thirtieth is uh, Children's Day in Mexico, so they had a full session where they like uh, zoomed in or skyped in um, like thirty kids, and they were all talking about how they were feeling about the pandemic. Uh, so it's very much like a, a daily sort of coming together to thinking about like how is the country dealing with this. Uh, so that has been fascinating to think about. I appreciated uh, what Amy said about the Zoom meetings and the Microsoft team meetings and the WebEx, uh, because we are spending so much time during the day staring at screens. And I, I don't know if other people are in this situation, but I've actually, I feel like I have way more meetings now than I did prior to the pandemic. Um, so I'm a faculty officer. So I'm constantly having now to meet with our chancellor. Uh, we, we're meeting with him on a weekly basis. So there's this strange experience of seeing into the homes of all these people who lead our university um, and kind of getting this very important information through these very mundane like screens. Like he's home in his polo, like with his best dad coffee cup. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, we're opening in the fall. And I'm like, what? Um, and so I agree with Amy in that it's sometimes I, I just want to read a book or sometimes just stare at the wall. Um, rather, even though like I take so much comfort and pleasure in watching film and TV and normally I can just do it forever. But um, there is there is an exhaustion, a screen exhaustion that I, I don't think I've ever had before. And I think it, it is the, the meetings that are doing it. No offense to this. This podcast is great, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of them. Yeah, I want to pick up on this this idea of the the sort of screen and and aesthetic forms that are circulating now, um, whether that be through these you know uh, political briefings uh, and and sort of PowerPoint slides, but also the idea that we are seeing into people's homes. Um, so I've been really indulging in looking at news anchors, pundits, and celebrity homes during this time. Uh, I've become interested in issues of taste as they concern class politics in a way that I don't think I have been before. Uh, so I guess I'm wondering like how my discourses of quality be altered now via technologies of remote broadcasting. On that one, um, I've been coincidentally doing research over the past couple of years uh, about talking heads on television and sort of going back to the 80s and thinking about the kinds of questions of um, cultural authority that, that became heightened when multi-channel, multi-platform environments were changing. And so with cable television in the US and then with Channel 4 in, in the UK, there there were all, all of these opportunities for people who hadn't had a presence on TV to all of a sudden you know, be seen and to claim some legitimacy. And there's something sort of interesting happening now, especially with late night, which is the other you know dimension of live television that's persisting, um, or, or illusion of live television, um, but that sort of ideological notion that we're present together persists on those late night shows. And um, and having that sort of DIY from the attic or from um, whatever spaces those guys are broadcasting is, is interesting in, in terms of whether it bolsters or diminishes their authority, right? And I think that in some real sense, it it's bolstered access to something that um, seems less contrived. And there's something about that immediacy that, again, I think people are, are hungry for. So, so there's a 
you know, we could parse some of the images and, um, and the class dimensions of them. But for those of us who have access to that, um, to that genre, it's, it's an interesting place to look. You know, it kind of um, it makes me think a lot about like Lynn Spiegel's work, make, you know, make room for TV and the idea that TV was, you know, initially sort of like in the home. But now television is of the home, which is a bit of a different thing. Right. Um, and it, it feels particularly interesting to me right now because we've been in, in like this wave of like cinematic television and quality television. And, you know, and but and now that's like all like it's just gone to hell. Right. So now it's like, no, actually. Actually, it's just like a crappy smartphone camera set up on a pile of books. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? With bad lighting. Um, and there's something, um, you know, I don't know what will happen with that, but it feels like um, an interesting sort of swing in the opposite direction from a lot of the discourse around quality television uh, that I've been I've been seeing. Um, I, you know, as a, as a sort of separate thing, I also um, thinking about like Zoom and, and I'm on sabbatical this semester, which like, yeah, you wait eight years for a sabbatical and now this is it. But um, so I have not, I say that to say I haven't really been in, I haven't like been teaching online. I haven't been in a lot of Zoom meetings. Um, but what does become really interesting, I think I have had to do like the classroom Zooms, like with my kids. And there's an interesting way that this experience has sort of revealed the, the, the sort of performative nature of like class and economic privilege denial that's been going on, you know, when um, for instance, your kids are at a, you know, a public school in Brooklyn, and then you zoom with the parents and you're like, y'all are in the Hamptons. Like, you're obviously yeah. not here anymore. <laughs> you know, uh, you're on vacation, you're somewhere. Um, there's something very, um, I, I hesitate to say, you know, that zoom and this sort of aesthetic is like democratizing discourse, but it does feel like there's honesty that's sort of slipping through that was obscured before, even with SNL, like I'm super interested in like, okay, what do, what did the where do you all live? You know, I saw something where Steven Spielberg zoomed, and like, of course, Steven Spielberg's home looks exactly as I would, you know, assume it to be. But you know, to realize that some of the people who I don't know, I guess I thought their houses were were maybe bigger or cleaner or something than they were. Um, it's I don't know. It's interesting for me, maybe from a gossipy standpoint. But but then also the celebrities who do this kind of performers of middle class something. But it's very obvious that there's a team of nannies and housekeepers who are living with them um, during all of this. It's for me that's like the the conversation um, that, that could spin off of some of these things, like the labor behind the the labor. Yeah, I've also been sort of looking at the SNL. I think what was most striking uh, was the juxtaposition of Colin Jost uh, sort of home with Michael Chase uh, and sort of the ways in which, again, that kind of performance of a particular kind of identity uh, is being produced even within the confines of, of, the, of the medium. And so, yeah, this idea that, you know, it does lend itself a kind of authenticity or perhaps authority, but maybe more, you know, akin to uh, a kind of intimate connection with with these folks at the same time that it alienates, right? And, and sort of we're, we're able to see those, those inequalities uh, become really severe in this moment. Uh, and also thinking about the, uh, the idea that we don't know what's going to happen with productions coming back. We're hearing talks of them becoming uh, leaner, right, to account for new rules and regulations. Um, so I think that's another way that we're going to um, see aesthetic changes, perhaps, um, to the medium, as well as how we're also being informed by social media, like TikTok uh, and, 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 other, and other forms. <laughs> 
so I do want to talk about Tiger King. Uh, yes. I, I came Sorry. So I came across a tweet a few days ago that said, I uh, quote, the rest of the world is watching America like America watched Tiger King. Um, <laughs> And I thought, what a perfectly succinct and illuminating indictment of this country right now. Um, Tiger King is so fascinating as a cultural text that did bring folks together as a shared streaming miniseries event. Uh, and it lives on, right? Uh, so what are your thoughts about the series and its, uh, and its impact in terms of its own ideologies? I'm the only person in America who hasn't seen Tiger King. Hey! So I can't wait to hear what you all think. <laughs> I will say, don't judge me for this, but I did watch the entire thing with my 10-year-old son. He is my ride-or-die, like, TV and movie companion. He will watch anything I say I'm going to watch. He will sit down and watch it with me. Uh, so we watched the whole thing. And I, I will say, I have to separate my critical side uh, when I watch something like that, it's not particularly well done. Um, I think any of us could have done a much better job putting together that that footage. But the fact that it came out right as we were all slipping into quarantine, it was just perfectly poised. And I have no regrets watching it. Um, I loved being able to watch it and talk about it with pretty much everyone who I interact with, whether it's people on Twitter, my cousins, my mother, um, my high school friends, uh, my media studies colleagues, everybody watched it. And there was something incredibly, it doesn't matter what it was. It was just incredibly comforting to have a shared text that we could all talk about as we're all kind of in our houses. So there's a million other things to talk about with that. But in terms of the experience, I, I appreciated having that opportunity during a pandemic. I would say I appreciated the most because of it was a shared text. Um, I would say I distract watched it because my partner started watching it and he became obsessed with it. And I think I only lasted an hour. And then I was like, I see where this is going. I think I'm fine. But then my students brought it up the next week. So then I was like, I'm missing out on this. So I, I started watching a little bit of it. I would just catch up. I know who Carol Baskins is enough to like carry a dinner conversation. Um, and it was great because it was a really good sort of icebreaker starting to this weird online class that I never knew how to teach. So we talked about Tiger King yeah. for like five minutes and it was a great yes. take into, into class material. But I never actually sat down and watched all of it. But then and during the pandemic, I joined TikTok uh, I became obsessed with TikTok and that became a recurring sort of intertext there because all the references, knowing all the references helps you understand TikTok videos so much better. Um, so I, I think I appreciate it so much because of how it's connected to all these other things that I am doing uh, more than the, the content itself. So I, I like watched all of it, read a million articles about it will likely teach it in some form in the fall um, and part of I mean what I thought was really interesting is it's like it's such a bad documentary like it's it's just not well done and um the, the obvious like bias in the editing against Carol is so like it's just so clear um but then also like the way that the filmmakers had no problems just sort of showing their hands like literally appearing on camera and snarking about the subjects uh struck me as um you know one just like really bad like filmmaking but also like so fitting for this moment where in a, in a lot of ways but also this idea of like bringing the audience in on the producer's side um and this idea that um all of us are in on the joke against the people that are being featured. But then, you know, I don't know, at the same time, like, 
as, as somebody who like have, has never, you know, been in the world of like the big cat world, um, which apparently <laughs> is a bigger thing than I realized, but for somebody who, you know, like I, I rode horses, uh, for a long time and I, I know my share of, I don't know, dudes with issues who seem to get a lot of personal satisfaction out of being in control of very large animals. Like there, there's also this way in which I don't want to be too quick to dismiss the pleasures of viewing as just like laughing at people being ridiculous. Cause that's sort of like the reality TV thing you hear all the time. Like that's why people like it. I, I do think there's some points of identification and, and pathos um, and general, you know, genuine fascination in the, in the show um, that feel, yeah, I don't know where, exactly where I'm going with that, but I just want to be careful not to dismiss like the, the, the entire of people's interest in it as being about laughing at these like ridiculous people um you know who live in florida and then wherever else i just keep saying florida which is horrible but like somebody in the show is in florida right um there is there is yeah (laughs) but i think that's precisely i mean the 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 way in which it touched all different kinds of audiences across classes right um the ways in which that kind of low culture right um was being sort of circulated and the various knowledges that were produced out of it through tiktok and and various other kinds of intertext um i think is really fascinating despite or in spite of its problematic politics, right? And so I think, you know, because it was pleasurable uh, in a lot of ways. And something that you said, Raquel, the kind of idea of the producers showing their hand, I think that's really fascinating. Uh, So doing any kind of like symptomatic reading seems to be self-evident or superfluous. Um, So I wonder is is talking ideology effective right now? Is doing ideological analysis effective in this moment that we're in? I mean, not if you're watching SNL at home. (laughs) That's just, sorry. That's all I can think of that I've been, that's been new that I've been watching. Yeah, and it's it's not good, uh, but it's very, again, it's very comforting to watch it because it's something we always did on a Saturday night. Um, and as a family, we would always watch on Sunday together with our kids. Um, so we continue, we continued, I know it's off the air now, but, um, yeah, it's all just very, it's all right there (laughs) on the surface for sure. But I mean, I do think that ideology helps us make sense of what we find pleasurable too, right? There's a way that we could talk about this just in terms of television, but we could also think about it in terms of the discourse um, around this virus and the way that things get represented. So like, for instance, I I don't watch the Cuomo briefings daily um, because, and you know, Brandy, you may have a sort of different experience of this uh, than me. Uh, I don't know what's happening in your neighborhood, but like, I can't watch the Cuomo briefings because I hear sirens outside my window all day, every day, right? There's a way that it's not, it's not a there text for me. It's like, this is what I'm sort of in the in the middle of. And I think I but it's interesting because I get these calls from my mom, which is like Cuomo's on. Right. And she's in Chicago and she finds so much pleasure and safety and comfort. Um, not that like Chicago's doing a bad job, but th- there's so much comfort for her with that. And I think that, you know, having some kind of lens and theoretical framework that helps us work through what we find pleasurable, particularly in these moments where all we're doing is pleasure watching, however we define pleasure watching, right? It feels like this is actually the perfect time to be using that to think through why we're all like just going back to whatever we watched as kids or, you know, at a happy moment. Uh, yeah, it feels useful, I would think. I think the the having the authority figure sort of working through those presentations, performances has been really helpful. Um, I I think I've seen some people talk about this in terms of Cuomo and the problems with that, but 
going back to my Mexico example, that Lopez Gatel, who's the Secretary of Health, has become like an entire celebrity in Mexico, which you wouldn't expect someone with a PhD in epidemiology to be, but like a full on with fan sites and going back to his teenage uh, pictures and how attractive he was when he was a teenager. But it's definitely, it's about filling that vacuum filling in that vacuum of there not being someone leading the charge. And at least you have the science sort of walking you through it. Um, so on an ideological level, like thinking about the, the, the celebrity persona as something that is helping us manage the anxieties, I think has, has been interesting to watch. I would say one show that I found very interesting ideologically that I didn't think I would is um, We're Here, which is on HBO. And it's a show, it's three drag queens from RuPaul's Drag Race, and they do a sort of similar to uh, Queer Eye, which is going to different spots, but rather all being one state, they've go to different states. So they will go to Pennsylvania, Idaho, Missouri. And the entire episode is around them putting on a drag show in this place that is normally going to be conservative in some ways. And they'll have three different sort of mentees that they'll walk through it. And when I first started watching, I thought it was going to be Queer Eye. I thought it was going to be, we're all in this together, shared humanity. But it's actually very subtly, but very cleverly, very much about no, we are, there are unreconcilable differences. So two of the drag queens are black and twice they've been walking and noticing Confederate flags in whichever town they're in and commenting on them, even just in their jokey way, but commenting on, on the fact that those are still proudly uh, shown everywhere. Um, and in the end, sometimes they don't even agree with the mentees that they're sort of working through their issues. Um, and they'll do this in their talking heads. They'll just say like, you know, I think this person's working. I'm not sure that they're there. Um, so I found that really refreshing in terms of the, the I'm pushing against sort of the reality TV trope of being like, we all just talked about this through an hour and now we found that we have more in common. Than we fixed it. We fixed it, <laughs> right? And this one, like Bob and Chandler would just be like, we actually don't. We have a lot more that is different. But hey, we're still going to put on a wig and do the show and then we'll see what happens. So that's been kind of refreshing to see. Well, and I wanted to come back too to something that you said about Tiger King in your classroom. Um, because there's this kind of question about for whom we do ideological analysis, and it's so much a part of what we do when we teach TV studies and introduce students to ways of grappling with things that are unfamiliar or have grammars um, or structures that need some probing and formal terms. And, and I'm missing, I, I have been teaching um, but I'm working with a program that has a group of freshmen and sophomores, and we meet more sort of informally. Um, and and so I'm missing the classroom opportunities to engage with ideology critique and with television texts. I wish that I had been teaching and I would have watched Tiger King um, had I. <laughs> uh, but and I'm wondering whether that's changed for folks teaching in these online environments uh, and whether we have the tools to do the kind of critical work that we um, want to be doing in these remote environments. I don't know. I mean, um, I will say this was a very privileged uh, situation in the sense that my class was an upper year seminar. So the students already had a lot of the tools to do the ideological critique. So the intro was basically me talking with them as they were doing the ideological critique of Tiger King. And then we moved on to the class material. So that was very lucky um, as opposed to using the text. Then now we're going to try and think through this thing that we're trying to learn because they'd already had it. They were already working through that. I don't know anyone who actually has been able to incorporate it this quickly into, into their classroom. Well, so I was actually teaching a reality TV seminar 
this semester. And I was very bummed that we went into quarantine because they were doing great. But needless to say, um, a large chunk of them, if not, there were only nine of them, but I think all of them uh, had watched Tiger King. So we did, uh, like Juan, we, we would spend kind of that first weird five minutes of class when you're on like Microsoft Teams together and like their moms are yelling for them to do something. Uh, and we would we would talk about Tiger King. And um, yeah, we, we definitely had conversations uh, about representation and things like that because again, they had the tools all semester. But what I found was kind of more interesting was I also taught a 95 student uh, introductory level class on the horror film this semester and kind of in an effort to get them to talk to each other I had set up kind of a chat and the question I had given them was we're watching horror movies for this class are you finding that you're watching more movies about apocalyptic things you know I thought this was sort of a natural transition right um, I certainly was doing it myself uh, and I was kind of floored by their responses because almost all of them were like I am not watching anything disturbing or upsetting the only horror films I have watched since the pandemic are the ones you have made us watch. And they were completely <laughs> shook up, uh, which in a way was really nice to see because I was like, they're taking it seriously. You know, like they're, they're worried, they're scared, you know, they're staying home. But at the same time, um, the way they were handling the anxiety of this was completely different from how I assumed they were going to handle it. I mean, I wanted to um, to sort of in response to what Amanda just said, but I was thinking about it with um, Juan, what you were just the show you were describing, but also thinking back to Tiger King, which is like the only text I have to reference. Basically, <laughs> there's 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 also this thing, and I think um, this epidemic, uh, sorry, this pandemic has sort of led us. To, there's this false sense also of community and false sense of like a flattened or a homogenous audience, right? And so, um, yeah. And one of the things, I mean, I again, I'm not teaching um, this semester, but I also like being in the class because I, in the classroom, because they surprise me. I don't know how anybody takes anything. It's like we're generations apart. There's a whole, there's a, a lot of ways that I'm different from my students. And it's not, it's, it's those casual conversations where things get revealed um, outside of the structure of the lecture that I usually find the most productive. And so even like with Tiger King, coming back to this idea of ideology, you know, there were there were these pieces that were floating around, like the editors cut out all of the racist things that like Joe Exotic said. And did you know that Joe Exotic is really racist? And I like, I just kind of laughed. I was like, of course he's racist. Like, dudes <laughs> who, like, who carry around guns, you know, dudes who have a harem of women. I mean, like talking about all the characters in that show, right? Yeah. Who like typically like have big animals they tend to be like my experience they tend to be racist like it's a real easy formula right like if you watch the show and you, you're watching a scene of a guy getting a tattoo removed me I'm like scanning his body and noticing all the white supremacist <laughs> tattoos that he has tattooed on his body and so the idea and like and for me that's a thing that like I make my peace with in order to continue watching which as a black viewer I have to do like basically with everything right but the idea that some viewers could could like not see it to me suggests that there's also this diversity of audiences that's getting flattened out by this idea that we're all in this together and we're all watching things in the same way. 
Yeah, I totally agree with that. And yeah, the, the kind of assumptions that are being made about who is watching. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about television flow, but also the way in which we're sort of returning to conversations around police brutality right now. Um, and, and the ways in which, you know, the circulation of, of anti-Black violence is now being mapped onto the pandemic and the ways in which different kinds of viewers are um, identifying and interpreting that information uh, has been really uh, striking for me. I also think that one thing that has been apparent to me as well in this moment of thinking through the way that television brings audiences to advertisers, right? And in this moment, COVID-19 commercials uh, seem to me like a prime example of like capitalism gasping for air. So in these moments of, of crisis, the state has usually pushed for aggressive spending, right? But how do we understand ourselves as consumers, right, within the commodity culture of, of TV right now, especially with sort of increased income inequality uh, and full-on depression? Uh, I don't know if anyone has seen circulated this uh, compilation of COVID-19 commercials. Uh, and they uh, all have this, and you should totally teach it. It's really teachable. Um, but yeah. it has the kind of slow music, right? Uh, then empty spaces, poetic connections, uh, yeah. saying, you know, we're all trying to connect which is to say we're all trying to like help you consume again <laughs> please use Grubhub or go to Target um, so yeah I mean I think that there's something really interesting again about television form uh, and the way it's being sort of put to these different kinds of ends in this moment one thing that I have thought about a lot is the fact that prior to all of this the big thing that we all complained about was having time to just be home and be an introvert and binge TV. And that's kind of part of this self-care discourse. But where does all of this kind of fit in when that's kind of all we can do? Like if we have free time, if we have the luxury of free time in our house and we have the time to kind of sit around and do nothing, the thing that we all thought that we wanted to do all the time is now the only thing we can do. Um, and so I think about that a lot. And I think about the privilege of being able to be bored, the privilege of uh, being able to just indulge in all these things that were sort of, you know, you only got them in snatches. And now I have them all the time. You know, I'm with my kids all the time. I, I can garden all the time. I can watch TV. I can, you know, do my work when I need to get it done. I, I feel like it's it's kind of an uncomfortable place to be. Um, I feel like a lot of guilt over it sometimes. And I don't really know what to do with that. But it's it's interesting just how to think about this time now that it's it's not the way we categorized it prior to this pandemic. I've been thinking a lot about privilege also in terms of the digital divide and access to broadband. I live in rural New York, but I live in a little pocket where we have you know, a reasonable provider. But my colleagues who live just a little bit outside of town have horrible service and are trying to teach remotely and be in touch with us. And that's become a real issue. And I hope it becomes a political issue that we can organize around. If anyone wants to give uh, support to Tracy Matrano, who's running to oust our uh, Republican representative, Tom Reed, um, who is on the Trump transition team, she's uh, somebody who has spent a career um, working on, on digital access. Um, and I, I think that you know we might see people starting to think about the macro 
policy, industrial organization questions coming out of this to realign some of these questions of access. And I've also been thinking along similar lines about the kind of highbrow culture that's available for free right now through, you know, whether the Metropolitan Opera or the Joyce Theater or, you know, the Donmar Warehouse or, um, you know, all of this stuff that we now have access to and people are having to rethink um, models of public culture. That could be exciting. It could be transformative. Um, It could be something that the public theater, you know, takes and runs with or, you know, theaters all over the country or other, um, other kinds of of organizations. So this kind of the lowbrow production values, the circulation of IFC movies at drive-ins, the $70,000 movie versus the tentpole, um, you know, being what we have access to. There's some very interesting big picture questions that are going to have to get sorted out down the road. I've been thinking um, a lot about like space, um, narrowly defined and broadly defined. So what happens to movie theaters and but not just movie theaters, but like what happens to repertory movie theaters that never turned a big profit to begin with? Right. Like, you know, the AMC theaters will will likely be fine. I I would assume they'll come back. But what about the ones that showcased independent filmmakers um, and older films and art house? Like what happens to those spaces after all this is said and done? And, And what does it mean? Um, you know, to live in a city like New York, for instance, where those places may, you know, like a place like Film Forum, like, like what happens if that never opens again, right? I mean, that's, that's a question that I have. But then also, you know, sort of piggybacking on what Amanda said, but also thinking about the way that this pandemic has changed what spaces mean, that it's not just like we watch TV at home. Home doesn't mean for me what it meant before, right? Like home isn't a site of leisure for it. Like, like if this is school, this is homeschool. And this is a place where it's never quiet. And this is a place where, do you know what I mean? Like that it's the way that we watch is completely different. Um, and screens are no longer a way that you get away from like the drudgery of your work it, like is where the drudgery of your work is located is. located now so um i've been thinking a lot about how this situation and the aesthetics of it and everything attendant to it um is actually redefining our engagement like with space you know sort of virtual space of screens but also the space of our homes um and what implications that have uh, that has moving forward thinking about space i've been thinking a lot about sound because of Zoom meetings. So I live in a one bedroom with a partner so, and we don't have an office. So coordinating our meetings has been fascinating just because it'd be like, it'll be end here. So that way you won't be heard when I start my meeting doing this. Cause even though there is a wall, it's not enough uh, to make that distinction. So yeah, definitely rethinking the home. Um, I had, I also had a grad class and my, one of my grad students was like, when we, when we rented this apartment, we never thought we'd be here more than like to sleep and a two, like two hours a day. And now we're essentially stuck in this like little box that we can't do anything. And this is Dallas, which has space. I can't imagine grad students or other people who are just living in places where it's already a shoebox to begin with. And now having to transform that entire space into everything, your home, your sleeping space, your workspace, everything. Great. Well, Amanda, Amy, Juan, and Raquel, thank you all for such a great conversation. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We want to express gratitude uh, to our sponsors, SCMS, the Department of Communication at Denison University, the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Academia team, Chris Becker, Bill Kirkpatrick, and Todd Thompson, 
for supporting and assisting us with the podcast series. Our next episode will be centered on the phenomenology of television. How is TV making us feel right now? What exactly is happening to our bodies? Are viewing practices being fundamentally altered? And we're excited to have guests for that episode, Karen Tongson, Hollis Griffin, Kristen Warner, and Suzanne Scott. Look out for that coming to your RSS feeds or wherever you get your podcast soon or via the website acamedia.org backslash pandemic hyphen TV, uh, as well as future episodes on technology and pedagogy. Um, as always, we're very interested in hearing your thoughts about television. So please send in your questions and comments. Um, you can contact us via talking television in a pandemic at gmail.com, on Twitter with the hashtag TalkTVInAPandemic, or by joining the Acamedia group on Facebook and posting a question there. Be safe and well. Bye. The past week has been difficult to experience and to watch, right, as anti-Black violence permeates our multiple screens yet again. I teach a TV race and civil rights course, and in that class, we talk about how formative the civil rights movement was to television's understanding of itself as a medium, um, its capacities for liveness that were really routed through Black American expressions of physical suffering and political demand. Um, this is the work of Sasha Torres and others, such as Herman Gray, who we had on our previous episode, and myself in thinking about the complexities of television, blackness, representation, and citizenship. Torres coined the term King TV to talk about the news and entertainment programming grappling with Rodney King's beating caught on tape and the Los Angeles riots. We always return to that formative moment of King and LA as we try to make sense of TV's logics during other uprisings in Ferguson and Baltimore. And now we're here, right? Where the entire nation is enveloped in social and political turmoil connected to state violence, not just in the case of George Floyd, but also Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. So I want to process this with my co-organizers, Lennon Hunter. Um, Thinking about, you know, how is TV news being deployed in this moment? What does it mean for networks and streaming platforms to respond in solidarity with Black Lives Matter? What is the role of the police procedural, right? Um, such a popular genre of television and other kind of representations of law enforcement uh, in dramas, but also comedies like Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And will the revolution be televised, right? Uh, Gil Scott Heron uh, had feelings about this. And so I would love to talk with you all in process uh, the last seven days. So I would, I, I think it's great that you um, mentioned some of the founding work on that about the very founding of TV as a national network and as, as a system of national networks. And how that was so much sort of on, based on the idea of capturing live sufferings of the black body. In addition to the people that you named that work on that, Brandy, there's also been fantastic work from Aniko Bodricosi and Matt Delmont. So a number of people have written about this, but I think that thinking about the way in which television capitalizes on these moments of suffering because it proves that sort of something is happening that TV needs 
is crucial to think about. And, you know, so obviously television is capitalizing on that. And now, especially, I think, as we already started talking about a little in these podcasts, with the pandemic and so many people being at home with their TV set and a kind of rise in interest again about live television, right, and its ability to bring us things live, I think that you see uh, that happening again and the proof of, of the liveness being, in a way, its ability to capture death. So I think that there are a lot of, of things to think about that. I think your point, though, also that it's important equally to think about fictionalized versions like law and order i mean even you know trump making these statements about law and order shows you know in a, in a way the way that that he is fully modeling his response on a particular televisual rhetoric as opposed to doing anything to heal the country i think there's a really interesting paradox happening with our sort of maybe relationship to tv news right now when the pandemic started, it seemed like many people were tuning into local rather than national news in order to get sort of like the most up-to-date information from their local Department of Public Health, but also because the Trump you know, nightly broadcasts didn't feel necessarily that informative or you know, had that spectacular rhetoric and aesthetic of political theater. But something that I noticed last night while watching, um, I'm in Los Angeles, uh, the local news coverage of last night, what were violent protests slash destruction of property in Santa Monica and Long Beach, was how the news, it's even local news, seems to be sort of unreliable in terms of how it was distinguishing between acts of protesting or acts of looting. And it got me thinking a lot about sort of that moment in Marianne Doan's work on uh, information crisis and catastrophe, in which she sort of says, like, in catastrophe, like, the news anchor loses all epistemological credibility because they are faltering, wondering if what they're saying is actually true. And I saw a lot of that at play in terms of, uh, you know, one local broadcaster saying, these are looters, these are not protesters, the two are totally separate, but then slipping back into that discursive framework often as the broadcast went on and sort of this complicated relationship that then the local news has to have between keeping the peace but also addressing the real sort of issues of rage and um, expressions of that that, that that come out in a moment like this. Yeah, and that idea of the, the the anchor is really fascinating, particularly in this moment of the pandemic when you have most, you know, anchors broadcasting from their homes still, right? Um, having certain setups, but there is this sense of even more kind of disorganization or, you know, the, the sort of aesthetics are, are very different. Um, and to that point, you know, also thinking about the journalists now, right? Reporters who are on the ground and the ways in which they are now being assaulted by law enforcement and, uh, and how do, what do we make of that? There's Oscar Jimenez, uh, Omar Jimenez uh, from CNN, who was, you know, a, a Black man uh, who was arrested on camera, right, live, uh, and what that kind of means in this moment. I uh, always watch uh, multiple news channels, and I flip constantly between them, between CNN, MSNBC, Fox, even now and then I want to check out however horrific one American <laughs> news network. Um, and one of the things that 
is amazing, but not at all amazing, predictable, but horrible is the very different ways that they're handling this. Um, some of which, as you were saying, Brandy, the way that the anchor people try to mediate and moderate the discussion and guide it in particular ways. Another, just in terms of who exactly they consider an expert that they're bringing on. So Fox News has been bringing on as experts, right, of course, representatives of law enforcement, but they brought on to comment about this issue. Uh, Mark Furman, infamous racist cop back from the O.J. Simpson days. Bernie Carrick, infamous racist cop. Rudy Giuliani with his law and order rhetoric where his statement was was just using this as a way to blast uh, Democratic politicians, Democrats. So those are the experts, right, that they're bringing on as opposed to some of the other networks who are, in fact, bringing on their own reporters who have been harassed by the police, speaking to community organizers, speaking to, to faith leaders, et cetera. Just today I was watching Harris Faulkner on, on Fox say, impassioned, where are the black leaders? Where are the black leaders? And I'm thinking, well, certainly not on your network yeah. <laughs> because you have not invited any of them on to comment or be experts. So, you know, again, one of the issues that we talked about in, in previous episodes and in the, the ideology one uh, as well is, is about media bubbles and this you know, at this moment of both a kind of national crisis, we also see these intranational divisions. Anyone want to take up Brandy's provocation of will the revolution be televised? Well, actually, I, I do want to talk about this response from networks and different streaming platforms. One, they seem to all be using the same uh, type script. And when they post on Twitter, their thoughts and affirming their workers and storytellers and other employees who are, you know, uh, affected. Uh, and they're sort of in solidarity for Black Lives Matter. So I guess I'm wondering if anyone has any thoughts about this kind of response. It seems like something that we haven't seen before. Maybe we haven't seen uh, it before, Brandy. I guess when, as you were describing what Netflix and CBS and a number of other industry players coming out in support of Black Lives Matter, I was thinking a lot about the rhetoric, thoughts and prayers that becomes invoked after every sort of like now mass shooting in America and how we use that term to talk about hollow gestures of, uh, you know, and, and to draw attention to its very sort of rhetor rhetorical construction. And I think, you know, that might be, that sort of association sticks. Yeah, and that's interesting. I mean, but I also think that there's something that happened, perhaps, you know, when Ferguson did, you know, emerge um, and other places where we've kind of moved the, the, the discourse has shifted to the point where, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, uh, in other contexts, the kind of question of wokeness. Right. Um, and it, that may also be mapping onto this kind of fragmentation of audiences uh, wanting to, uh, you know, perform a certain kind of brand uh, in order for these platforms to retain uh, their millennial kinds of activist audiences. I think in some ways, you know, to use a television term, we need to stay tuned to see because, you know, is it going to just be a hollow statement or are these networks, in addition to putting out their statement of support, going to actually try to do or something? Or not have Tiger change, King? You know, who's <laughs> on, 
Right. Who's going to, and who's going to be on their board and what program are they going to put out there? Who are they going to interview again? What, what voices are they going to allow to be heard? So, you know, I guess the question of, you know, will the revolutionary be televised? I mean, of course we can flip it and only hope that television will be revolutionized, yeah. right? That, uh, that other voices will enter in. And we see people, you know, out in the protests making their own videos um, which now has an interesting relationship to the journalists themselves as sort of really there in the protest, as you said, often being targets themselves. So maybe there can be some potentials for televisual change. Maybe this is going to be nothing more than just another attempt to, you know, brand and commodify themselves. So again, I would say we have to stay tuned. <laughs>